the House of Representatives has passed the For the People Act, the largest and boldest democracy bill in modern-day history. With your help, it can pass the U.S. Senate and bring about sweeping improvements to our democracy, including protecting and expanding voting rights, ending partisan gerrymandering, and curbing big money in politics. Extremist politicians are attacking voting rights in 47 states, introducing over 360 laws to make it harder for communities of color, young people, people with disabilities, and working people to vote. We need national standards to protect our freedom to vote. The For the People Act will protect our freedom to vote by making sure that voting options are equally accessible across all 50 states. It establishes early voting, same-day registration, and stops voter purges, among other things. It also makes sure our voices are heard by preventing billionaires from buying elections, and it guarantees that congressional districts are drawn to give fair representation to all. There is a dire need to pass the For the People Act in order to protect and strengthen our democracy. To that end, on Sunday, June 27th, at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, we will be conducting a pro-democracy activist training. You can register by going to tinyurl.com slash democracy story. Come, build a pro-democracy movement by telling your own story of why we must fight for democracy and pass the For the People Act. By telling your democracy story and helping others tell their story, we increase the number of Americans who can enthusiastically advocate for the bill from their own authentic voice and in their own communities. Come, inspire others to call their senators and tell their stories. Together, we will build hope community, and excitement around democracy and the For the People Act and showcase to the Senate the broad public support for this legislation. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and In the last episode, we left Jesus sitting down to dinner with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees questioned his choice of friends, and he responded by calling for an ethos of mercy rather than sacrifice. In this episode, 
We continue with the same scene, but a different group comes to question Jesus. This time, Jesus has to respond not to his enemies, but to his allies. He has to help them understand that it is not enough to do the right thing, that one must temper righteousness with compassion. He must teach them that the right thing at the wrong time can actually be the wrong thing. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 21 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's read Matthew 9, 14-17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wineskin put into old wineskins. Otherwise the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Wow, a lot of imagery to unpack, a lot of parabolic talk in this passage. So forgive me if I get into a little bit of preacher mode in trying to unpack it all. I think a lot of the Bible can only be understood if we feel it. It was written in a culture which makes full use of emotions to communicate. So much of it can't really be understood unless we feel it. So my commentary on this passage will lean into the emotional and poetic force of the text. This passage starts out with feasting versus fasting. What should good revolutionaries do, feast or fast? Jesus is feasting. He is feasting with tax collectors and sinners. This time, it is not the notorious Pharisees, but rather Jesus' allies, the disciples of John, who questioned the practice of Jesus. This time, the question is not about whom he eats with, but rather that he is eating at all, rather than fasting. These disciples of John are earnest. They are disciplined. They are fellow revolutionaries. But they don't fully comprehend the moment that they are witnessing. As disciplined revolutionaries, they are committed to the discipline of fasting. They fast in solidarity with those who have no food. They fast so that they maintain a revolutionary vigilance, always ready to suffer for the cause, to sacrifice themselves for the movement. So they expect everyone else worthy of their salt to fast also. If one does not fast, then one is not serious about revolution. But in their zeal and discipline, they fail to comprehend what is going on right in front of them. 
They see Jesus at dinner with societal outcasts, but fail to recognize the moment of liberation. And so they lose sight of the whole point of fasting. They have forgotten the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 58, 5-7 reads, Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Zechariah also questions fasting practices, saying, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past seventy years, was it really for me that you fasted? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Zechariah 7, 4-10 Zechariah goes on in the next chapter to turn fasting into celebration. Jesus has nothing against fasting. He did a 40-day fast himself just five chapters ago. The problem seems to be timing. The problem seems to be that they have lost the sight of the whole point of fasting. They come at the very point in time that Jesus is eating with some people who have been alienated by everyone else, probably even by other radicals like the disciples of John the Baptizer. Tax collectors and sinners can't get into that highly disciplined movement. They will never measure up. But Jesus makes a way for them. In the spirit of the prophets of Isaiah and Zechariah, he has a little feast with them. It is probably meager by our standards, but the point isn't the quality or quantity of the food, but the quality and quantity of the honor. In this honor-shame society, Jesus gives them honor, something no one else gives them. The prophets speak of the ingathering of the lost, sometimes using the image of a feast. That is what we get in this scene. The tax collectors and sinners are the lost of the society. Jesus gathers them in for a feast. Jesus tells the disciples of John that this is not the time to speak of fasting. This is the time to celebrate the liberation of those marginalized in society. He says that they cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them. Of course, the reader immediately identifies the bridegroom as Jesus. So it seems that he is merely saying that they can't fast until he is taken away to be crucified. But, like everything in this gospel, there are layers of meaning, and they all have to be penetrated to get the full force of the message. The image of the bridegroom in Isaiah is an image of liberation and justice for the poor and those under oppression. Jesus is saying that there is a time for fasting, but the moment of liberation, when the proverbial bridegroom is still with them, is not it. It is like telling people who have been deprived of food that immediately upon getting a decent meal that they now have to give it up 
to be in solidarity with everyone else that does not yet have food. There is a time for such solidarity, but this is not the time. These tax or toll collectors and sinners have been deprived of honor. So Jesus gives them honor through this supper. He will go on to teach all of his followers to divest themselves of honor for the sake of building the new society. In today's language, we would say, divest yourself of privilege. But the time for that teaching is not now. These outcasts have lived their whole lives without honor. And now is the time for them to receive honor. So now is not the time to speak of fasting. But through instructing them about the proper timing, Jesus alludes to his own death when the bridegroom is taken away. And he reminds them that this movement is a revolutionary movement. A revolutionary movement includes both fasting and feasting, but it does not conform to the old timetables of the former society. You see, there were regular schedules of fasting for zealous Jews, and this may be what the disciples of John are referring to when they say, we and the Pharisees fast often. Well, a revolutionary movement includes both feasting and fasting, but it does not conform to those old timetables of the old society. And it will lead to martyrdom. You can't sew a new cloth onto an old garment, or it will tear it open. The old society had appointed times for fasting, and apparently Jesus is feasting in one of them, because liberation has its own timetable. Liberation doesn't fit neatly into the timetable of the old society, but rather tears the fabric of that old society. Liberation can't fit nicely into the wineskin of the old society, but rather bursts it wide open, spilling the wine, a symbol of blood in the literature of the early church. This revolutionary movement will tear the fabric of society. It will burst open the old wineskin of the old society and spill the blood of the martyrs. When the blood is spilt, that will be a time for fasting. Until then, Jesus will celebrate with the outcasts, the lost who are now found. His practice of feasting will lead to the Last Supper, the Feast of the Eucharist, a symbolic spilling of his own blood and the blood of all the martyrs who walk in the same footsteps. This practice of feasting will lead to fasting. It will lead to the cross. Jesus says, right now we will party with the sinners. We will celebrate their release from bondage to the empire and to the shame of society. Today we will give them honor. Later, we will march on Jerusalem, where we will disrupt and tear open the fabric and wineskins of the imperial system of domination. There, we will rouse the wrath of the empire and feel the full force of its brutality. Then, you can fast. This has been Episode 21 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you.
episode, with dramatic images of the tearing of cloth and bursting of wineskins, Jesus made the point that partying with the sinners or feasting with the freshly liberated is part of the revolution. These actions are part of how the movement will tear the fabric and burst the wineskins of the old society. Of course, you may have noticed that in those parabolic images, Jesus actually talks about not tearing the fabric or bursting the wineskins. One perceptive listener picked up on that and asked me about it in a message through the Facebook page for this podcast. Something that you can do, by the way. So, I realized that I did not explain very well how an image about not tearing fabric and not bursting wineskins is actually about tearing fabric and bursting wineskins. Well, I do have an explanation for this that I had in my notes, but it did not, for some reason, make it to the final cut of my episode text. Here is how I think it works. Jesus is being clever and ironic. On the one hand, the kingdom of heaven, the new society, is a whole new thing. It is not a patch on the old system. It is not merely something that you can pour into the old ways. Rather, it is a whole new thing, a whole new system that needs its own wineskin, as it were, its own ways and timetables and laws. But the new society will be built in the shell of the old, and it will tear the fabric and burst the wineskins of the old society. There will be a clash between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. And in that clash, the blood of the martyrs will be spilled. First the blood of Jesus, and then the blood of all who take up the cross and follow Jesus. The Greek word for tearing in this passage is the same word that will be used for the curtain in the temple tearing at the crucifixion of Jesus. And the wine that is spilled is a symbol in the literature of the early church for the blood of Jesus. So this text foreshadows the crucifixion, just as many of the texts throughout the story do, and it speaks to the revolutionary nature of the kingdom of heaven, the new society. The kingdom of heaven is revolutionary because it will clash with and tear the fabric of the old society, burst its wineskins. I hope that makes sense. In the last episode, I also mentioned a text from Zechariah, that critiques fasting practices. And when Zechariah talks about the time when fasting turns to celebration, he punctuates the momentousness of the occasion by saying that foreigners will grab the hem of a garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's Zechariah 8.23. Well, in the passage for this episode, a woman does something very similar. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 22 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.
Let's read verses 18 to 26 of chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his clothes, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. But they laughed at him. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout that district. Jesus here continues the work of reconciling the common people who have been alienated from each other. Matthew symbolizes this reconciliation by portraying two healing stories intertwined with each other. The healing of a woman suffering from hemorrhages, the Greek word here indicates uncontrolled menstrual bleeding, and the healing of a ruler's daughter. The first woman seems to be a marginalized person, the latter the daughter of a high-status person. Both of these people are marginalized through their gender status. Both are unclean according to the purity code, one by virtue of having a hemorrhage or uncontrolled menstrual bleeding, and the other by virtue of being dead. Both the bodies of hemorrhaging women and the bodies of dead people were, according to the law, unclean as long as they remained in those states. The latter, of course, were not expected to make a full recovery. In the case of so-called hemorrhaging women, however, while most would, of course, realize an end to their menstrual flow, the woman in this story has been suffering from an uncontrolled flow for 12 years. The Greek indicates one continuous hemorrhage, rather than multiple hemorrhages, as the NRSV renders it. But multiple hemorrhages is probably more realistic, and likely what the author of Matthew has in mind. At any rate, she was either perpetually unclean or frequently unclean for long periods of time, and therefore socially marginalized, leading a very difficult existence. Anyone who touched the body of a hemorrhaging woman would be unclean for the rest of the day, until dark. Anyone touching the body of a dead person would be unclean for seven days. As in the case of the man with the skin condition, however, Jesus doesn't become unclean by touching them. Instead, his contact heals them, making them clean. Again, his purity seems to be contagious. As I have said previously, this healing and cleansing through touch may not be completely unprecedented in ancient Israel. There are later records of rabbis doing it. But as a hallmark of Jesus' movement for a new society, it is significant. In the new society, people will be able to heal and cleanse each other without aid of profit-making healers or the costly certification of purity by the temple.
The version of this story found in Mark is a bit more dramatic. The ruler, who is specifically identified as a synagogue ruler, comes and begs Jesus to come heal his daughter, who is about to die. The girl is not dead yet, so Jesus has to come quickly before she dies. But on the way, he is touched by the woman with the hemorrhage and stops to interact with her. At the end of that interaction, word arrives that the synagogue ruler's daughter has died, so Jesus need not come to the house. In other words, by tending to the needs of the marginalized woman, Jesus has failed to attend to the needs of the high-status household. Of course, Jesus goes on to the house anyway and raises the girl from the dead, but the point has been made that all God's daughters are equally important. Matthew abbreviates the story, as he often does with material that he gets from Mark, and has the report at the outset that the girl is already dead. So it is not quite as dramatic, but the point is the same. Matthew retains enough detail to emphasize the contrast between this lone marginalized woman and the elite household. The ruler brings his request to Jesus directly, respectfully, according to cultural norms, but with confidence. The woman, in contrast, sneaks up from behind, trying not to be noticed. But Jesus stops his progression to the ruler's house to attend to her, addressing her as daughter. He then locates the source of her healing, not in himself, but in her. He makes the point of saying that it is her faith that has healed her. And the word that is actually used for healing is not the usual one. It is actually the word that is often translated to save. It can also mean to liberate. Jesus tells this woman that her own faith has liberated her. He then proceeds to the ruler's house, where he gets laughed at but raises the girl from the dead anyway. Despite the behavior and attitudes of the people around them, both daughters find healing and liberation. Both are honored by Jesus. But that is not all that is going on in this scene. Just as the previous scene in last week's episode alluded to the death of Jesus through the spilling of wine, symbolizing blood, this scene does something very similar. In this case, the women experience the suffering and the liberation that Jesus will experience later. The hemorrhaging woman experiences a flow of blood, which Jesus will experience on the cross. In chapter 27, verse 49, the narrator will tell us specifically that blood with water flows from Jesus' side on the cross. The girl experiences death and then resurrection, just as Jesus will. So, in chapter 8, Matthew declared that Jesus fulfills the text from Isaiah that says, He bore our sicknesses and carried our diseases. Matthew presents us with the fulfillment here in chapter 9 in the foreshadowing that Jesus will bear the suffering of the women on the cross, as well as their liberation in the resurrection. Jesus goes on from there to heal two blind men 
and a deaf mute. Let's read verses 27 through 34. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying loudly, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus sternly ordered them, See that no one knows of this. But they went away and spread news about him throughout that district. After they had gone away, a demoniac, who was a mute, was brought to him. When the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed and said, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, By the ruler of the demons, he casts out the demons. With these two episodes, Matthew rounds out this series of healings in chapters 8 and 9. The healings of the blind men and of a deaf mute complete the imagery from the prophets that lies behind these chapters. We can hear in the background the words of Isaiah when the prophet sings of Israel's liberation from foreign oppression. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. That's from Isaiah 35, 5-6. All that Jesus has been doing in the last two chapters, healing people and gathering in the outcasts of society, are images from the prophets of liberation for Israel from foreign oppression and the dawning of an age of justice. As if to highlight that Jesus is doing acts of liberation, the two blind men call him Son of David. There was a popular belief that a descendant of King David would come and liberate Israel from Rome. This is the first time in the story that a human character in the story addresses Jesus as Son of David. Only the narrator and an angel have said that so far. Ironically, however, Jesus' liberation contrasts with the methods of David. David waged military campaigns. Jesus liberates through a campaign of healing. This contrast will continue to be a theme in the story. There is, interestingly, an ancient, mostly extra-biblical tradition that Solomon, the literal son of David, healed people and cast out demons. This last healing of the mute man in chapter 9 is actually an exorcism. Exorcisms in this story highlight the Roman source of oppression. Satan, in the literature of the early church, was understood to be the spirit behind the Roman Empire. So those possessed by demons, Satan's agents, bore the symptoms of Rome's oppression. One symptom of that oppression was muteness, in other words, not being able to speak freely. Reading the gospel text from the standpoint of privileged modern North Americans, we can easily forget that occupied people are often highly restricted in their freedom of expression. The mute man represents that dimension of the Roman occupation of Israel in this story. He does not enjoy freedom of speech until Jesus liberates him. Another irony in this story is that Before liberating the mute man to be able to speak, 
he tells the blind men not to speak, to keep their healing on the down low, probably because he is trying not to attract the attention of the authorities. This attempt to run a secret underground movement never seems to work, however, and we find the Pharisees appearing at the exorcism of the mute man. The Pharisees are the least hostile group in the ruling class, but hostile nonetheless. They accuse Jesus of having the spirit of Rome, the prince of demons, which then gives him the power to order the demons out of the people. Jesus does not answer this accusation at this point. They will make the accusation again in chapter 12. Jesus will answer them at that point. For now, Jesus will instead begin to infuse others with the authority to heal and liberate people. And that will be the topic of the next passage. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this podcast series is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. This has been episode 22 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.